Welcome to CineStudy, an incomparable extravaganza featuring film breakdown, analysis, and overall good times. Now for our sixth episode, The Big Short. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode six of CineStudy. I'm your host, Dylan. I'm flying solo today. Hopefully that won't be a big deal, but let's not let that plague our minds any further, and let's just get right into it. Today's movie is 2015's The Big Short, directed by Adam McKay and starring Christian Bale, Steve Carell, Ryan Gosling, and a giant ensemble cast of names I will eventually hit on. But those are kind of the big ones, and I named the director, as I always do, in the year when I'm just establishing the movie. I'm rambling now. Let's get right into the IMDb plot synopsis. Now, there's something I want to put out before I get into the plot synopsis, and it kind of foreshadows later in the episode as well. Basically, I'm not going to go too deep into some of the Crash Course real-life true story stuff, or I guess what I'm trying to say is a lot of the Crash Course the spoiler section and the plot will blend together because this is a true story. We know how it goes, we know how it ends, we know what led up to it, and most of the plot is just kind of based off that, and I want to focus, when I'm doing these true story movie episodes, I want to focus more on kind of the other elements that make that story interesting to watch on film. So if I'm doing some movie like, say, Captain Phillips or Patriot's Day or some other you know, true stories that will pop to mind as I continue to ramble, I'm not going to focus so much on the plot itself because there's so many resources to find out, you know, what happened to Captain Phillips or what happened with the Boston Marathon bombing or what happened with, you know, the big short, I guess you could just refer to it as. And I really just want to focus on what makes those movies good, whether it be, you know, some of the more technical aspects, whether it's the comedy, the writing, whether it's the, you know, effects, cinematography, whatever it is how well it tells the story, and not so much on the big plot twists and stuff like that. We will touch on, you know, how well of, how well these films relate to being a true story or how well they execute the story that they're trying to convey, I guess you could say. But again, I'm not going to focus too much on the plot itself. I'll just kind of briefly run through it. When I'm going through the spoiler section in this movie, you'll find that there's not really that many spoilers. It's me just more talking scene by scene about stuff I like. It's not really going to be any big oh, there was this plot point and that plot point. I will discuss some of them because, you know, if you haven't followed the true story that much, you might be curious or you might like how they execute it in this movie. So I'll touch on it a little bit, but don't expect any in-depth kind of plot stuff as I like to do with some uh, some of the other movies, even though I haven't really done that with the movies I've covered so far alone on this podcast. All right, but enough of the disclaimer talk. Let's just go into the IMDb plot synopsis, as I mentioned a second ago. And again, you know, this stuff will tend to repeat and blend together with the spoiler section and the plot section and other segments. But let's just read what IMDb has to say. Enough talking. In 2006 and 2007, a group of investors bet against the U.S. mortgage market. In their research, they discover how flawed and corrupt the market is. Simple enough IMDb plot synopsis. Not a very good or gripping one, but, you know, again, you can look up this story and get the general idea. The other IMDb plot synopsis is or synopsi, I don't know how to say it, are way too long, so I just read this one that's at the top. Anyway, 
Let's go right into the crash course. As you know, on crash course, we give you you know some interesting fun facts as well as some information you might want to know on the directors and the actors and the making of this movie. Just interesting things to keep in mind before you watch the movie or if you have watched the movie, things that might add to your knowledge or your value of the movie. But I won't try to establish this any further. Let's just get into it. So The Big Short was nominated for several Oscars. I'll read through them really quickly. It's nominated for Best Achievement in Film Editing for Hank Corwin, Best Achievement in Directing for Adam McKay, Best Performance by an Actor in a Supporting Role for Christian Bale, Best Motion Picture of the Year for, obviously, the motion picture, the big short, and Best Writing Adapted Screenplay, which it actually won. So it won one of its many Oscar nominations, being Best Writing, the screenplay being done by Adam McKay, the director, as well as Charles Randolph. We'll touch on the writing later on, as that's a big thing I want to talk about in this movie. It's also nominated for several Golden Globes. This included Best Screenplay Motion Picture. This was a nomination. All of the Golden Globes were nominations that didn't win any Golden Globes. But we also had Best Motion Picture, Comedy or Musical, Best Performance by an Actor in a Motion Picture, Comedy or Musical for Christian Bale, and Best Performance by an Actor in a Motion Picture, Comedy or Musical for Steve Carell. So it actually had two of its actors nominated, but neither one took home the trophy. And I will talk about the acting in this movie in depth for sure. Also got nominated for some BAFTA awards and a bunch of other kind of international smaller things, an AFI award. I don't really follow the AFI awards. I don't know if that's considered a big deal, but it was the winner for Movie of the Year for the AFI, and it won a bunch of other smaller awards. That's about it for awards, so let's kind of talk about its IMDb statistics for right now. Uh, It currently has a 7.8 out of 10 stars on IMDb, which is pretty good. Pretty much anything that's 8 or above is bound to be very good, according to IMDb, and there's only like three nines from my limited knowledge of remembering what has nines on IMDb. It's not a lot of stuff. Eights is a semi-select group as well if you scroll down the top 250, especially kind of the upper eights. But you'll find that a 7.8 is an extraordinary, like, and by extraordinary I mean absolutely insane extraordinary, but it's pretty darn good is what it is. I would say that's a pretty great IMDb score. This movie is two hours and ten minutes long, so, you know, maybe you consider that on the longer side. I don't really pay attention to the length of movies that much. I know a lot of people want to keep it right around the two-hour mark, and that fits in there just fine, I would say. This movie is rated R. This movie achieving that rating for pervasive language and some sexuality and nudity. Maybe I'll remember to talk about those things. I doubt I will. I mean, you know what you're getting when you have an R or a PG-13 rating on stuff. PG or G, it doesn't really matter. R can kind of be far-ranging in terms of how bad it is. Really, this one is mainly the language. The other categories are not hit into quite as much. And this movie, last but not least for IMDb, is classified as a biography and a comedy. There's probably other genres, but again, I can only see the first two on the IMDb app, which is sort of a complaint I have with the IMDb app, but who really cares about what genres it classifies in? Because last time I checked, Drake and Josh Go to Hollywood is classified as horror as one of its genres. So I really don't care about these genres because if that was any indication of how insane these genre systems can be, then you now have an idea for, well, what I just said, that these systems are very stupid. So I just thought I'd read you what it said for the big short anyway. I mean, I just read it all the time because why not? At least you have a general sense. And yes, I'd say this falls under biography and comedy pretty much to a T. I guess biography kind of sums up true story as well because this isn't really following one life as a biography would technically be. But, you know, same drill. All right, let's talk about kind of the director and some of the actors and the writers and stuff like that and how they kind of tie in. Most notably, I want to mention the director here. 
The director is Adam McKay, as I mentioned. He wrote a little bit of this film, and you'll find if you look at his IMDb that he's written lots and lots of movies, and you'll find that most of them are comedies. So he worked on Ant-Man, and he worked on a ton of Will Ferrell movies. And by a ton of Will Ferrell movies, I mean a ton of Will Ferrell movies. You got Anchorman, Anchorman 2, The Campaign, The Other Guys, Step Brothers, Talladega Nights, and several other kind of shorts and SNL things that I'm sure tie in with, you know, Will Ferrell and just other comedic talents out there. But that's what I find so interesting is that this guy went from writing pure kind of goofy comedies, uh, Get Hard, I just saw that is another one that he did, Pure goofy comedies, you know, Will Ferrell comedies are notoriously kind of unique and strange. He went from that to writing The Big Short, which is kind of a serious, if you think about it, a serious subject, kind of uptight, almost snobby subject in the world of banking. And so, you know, that might have been a good choice. We'll talk about the writing later. Uh, but he did write The Big Short, and I just wanted to mention that. Obviously, he also directed The Big Short, and he directed many of these comedies as well. Both Anchorman's, Step Brothers, Talladega Nights lots of movies and he did some saturday night live work as well i want to mention though not very much he's also produced a ton of stuff i don't really ever mention producing credits because who produces a movie rarely has an impact on it so you know we'll just pass up on that so yeah again i just want to reiterate adam mckay has a very interesting portfolio in that he went from a ton of kind of strange and some of which are not critically acclaimed will ferrell movies to writing the big short which then got a ton of oscar praise so we'll talk about that a little bit later on in the writing and directing section, but I just want to put that out there. The other writer we had was Charles Randolph. Charles Randolph wrote some other movies such as Love and Other Drugs, and that's really about it. Uh, he wrote some other movies, some kind of TV movies, nothing really big. Uh, the only kind of you know main things that I've heard of that he's done is Love and Other Drugs, of course, starring Jake Gyllenhaal and Anne Hathaway. But Let's move on from him. He doesn't have quite as big as a portfolio as Adam McKay. I do want to mention this movie is not only based upon a true story, it's based upon a book written by Michael Lewis. Michael Lewis also wrote Moneyball, The Blind Side, and several other works, so you'll find that he's kind of influenced a lot of this true story genre. Maybe not necessarily a lot, but a lot of the critically acclaimed ones for sure, and he definitely had some influence on the big short. Let's go through a couple little fun facts, and maybe I'll talk about the acting and kind of what led up to the casting and stuff like that in a little bit. Uh, the author of the book, Michael Lewis, revealed in an interview that Paramount, obviously the studio that was doing the film, allowed director and screenwriter Adam McKay to make this film. So obviously he had a lot of pull behind this movie. He wanted to get this movie made, and obviously it was a little outside of the genres he'd been working with. But anyway, Paramount said they would let him make this movie only if he agreed to make a sequel to Anchorman, which, of course, he eventually did. It does seem interesting that that was the deal that was made. Uh, Christian Bale met with the real Dr. Michael Burry, the character, or I guess the person he was playing in the movie. He actually borrowed some of Burry's clothes for the movie, and he also wanted to sit next to Burry in the movie premiere to maybe see his reaction and see if his representation was actually faithful. And apparently the real Michael Burry also made a cameo in the film as an employee of the company or the, I guess the firm that Christian Bale, who is playing Michael Burry, runs. Apparently some of the other characters in this movie are slightly fictionalized rather than Michael Burry. Apparently Mark Baum, who's played by Steve Carell and is kind of the, I guess, president of this kind of small group of investors or whatever under the bigger umbrella of, I believe, Goldman Sachs. I'm not going to talk too much about some of this technical stuff. I'll do my best to get through some of that with, you know, the many financial terms that are used in this movie. But, you know, I'll just put that out there for now. Again, the character Mark Baum, sorry, back to the main point, 
who was played by Steve Carell, was apparently based on real-life money manager Steve Eisman. Uh, Jared Vanette, who's played by Ryan Gosling, was based on real-life trader Greg Lippman. Ben Rickard, who's played by Brad Pitt, was based on Ben Hockett. And Charlie Geller and Jamie Shipley, who are played by two younger actors who I'll look up their names later on, were based on people of the same first names but different last names. Since Christian Bale's character of Michael Burry has a glass eye, there was some effects done on the glass eye, and you can tell something's a little off when you watch Christian Bale act, and that is one of the main things, but it's not too obtrusive. The director said that he didn't want it to be too obtrusive because usually you're not aware of someone's glass eye, uh, except he says the odd occasion when it doesn't move. So they apparently went through a lot of shots to kind of edit it and you know, do it occasionally and not make it a big thing, but you can definitely pick up on it at some time. Apparently Adam McKay wrote the role of Jared Vanette with Ryan Gosling in mind, and apparently only Ryan Gosling in mind. And the last thing I guess I should mention is that this was Adam McKay's dramatic directorial debut. That's something I touched on earlier, but that's interesting to think about, and this was his first movie without Will Ferrell. The cast is also pretty good because there were lots of Oscar winners and Oscar nominees in the movie. You got Christian Bale, Mosaleo, Brad Pitt, Marissa Tomei, and nominees Steve Carell, Ryan Gosling, and Margot Robbie. Uh, we won't talk about that too much. Just want to mention a visual pun that I'll definitely forget about because I just read about it and now I'm like, ah, oh, I remember that shot. There's a shot in Las Vegas where you can clearly see this billboard of Martin Short, and it is quite literally a big short. So, you know, there you go, a little visual pun for you. I am quite a fan of puns, and I have to say I'm kind of mad I didn't pick up on that one without a little help, but that's pretty awesome. All right, I think we're done with Crash Course. I gave you some information on the writer, the director, a little bit on the actors, though not too much, you know, just some of the things about how they prepared. Really only Christian Bale had some notable kind of interactions with the person he was playing, and that's because it appears that some of the other characters were just characters that were based upon real-life people and not exact representations. But again, I gave you a little bit of information, some trivia, some IMDb statistics. As I always mention, Crash Course isn't meant to be all-inclusive. You just get a general idea. I'm going to have to stop saying that every single episode. But oh well, let's stop with Crash Course and move on to one of my favorite segments. And that segment is, of course, the acting in the big short. All right, so again, as I mentioned earlier, there is a lot of cast members in this movie. So I'll hit some of the bigger characters, I guess, and then, you know, rattle through some people from the ensemble i might mix up some names with some characters so you'll have to kind of just bear with me on that but just know by the end my general opinion on the acting it'll be pretty clear by the end and you'll have a better sense for what i think i guess i could say all right so we have christian bale the one person playing a real life person that would be michael burry christian bale is basically the head of scion capital uh which is basically a fund uh, i guess it's kind of just a banking slash economic firm it's not it's not entirely clear what they do i guess maybe they bet on some of these markets i am very shaky on a lot of the financial stuff and i will just basically tell you the positions of these people in this movie i will say in the movie let me put it out there now those terms are explained very thoroughly and in a method where you're pretty much spoken directly to and it's pretty obvious i'll tech i'll touch on that in the spoiler section for sure but anyway, I will try to get these financial terms as best as I can. Don't count on me 100% of the time. I guess take what I'm saying with a grain of salt for this one. Usually, I'm pretty solid on the plot details, but I mean, you know, nobody knows about some of these financial banking terms. In fact, Ryan Gosling says something in the movie along the lines of these terms being generally simple uh, and that bankers like to come up with fancy names for everything to make the rest of the world think that they can't do 
what the bankers do, or I guess what the investors and Wall Street analysts do. Uh, but you get the idea. It's laid out pretty nicely in the movie. You can have a better idea for that if you watch the movie. Again, the spoiler section is going to be a little fuzzy today as I try to work around some of those facts. All right, but back to the topic at hand, which is Christian Bale as Michael Burry. You can let me know later no, and I can did come you, back. Did, 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 did you did you think it was strange when um, the tech bubble burst in 2001 and the housing market in San Jose, the tech capital of the world, went up? I want you to get me the uh, uh, top 20 selling mortgage bonds. So you want to know what the top 20 selling mortgage bonds are? No, 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 no. I want to know what mortgages are in each one. Uh, I'd say this is a pretty nice performance. He doesn't have a whole lot to work with. That's one thing I was kind of frustrated about is Christian Bale is one of my favorite actors and it's not the writing, it's not the directing, it's not really anything. It's just that there is a lot of characters in this movie and they're all doing pretty important things and for the most part he kind of takes a back seat. He gets the ball rolling on everything but then he's just kind of watching what he started play out and this will make more sense again when I talk about plot. But He's just kind of watching everything play out and not necessarily interacting and going to these, you know, deals and negotiations and pitches that a lot of the other kind of financial guys are doing. So, you know, again, he's just kind of witnessing some of this stuff. But the scenes that he's in, and again, he's in a lot of the beginning kind of expository stuff, I'd say he's pretty awesome. I mean, he has a kind of weird character he's playing. This guy's kind of, I don't know really how to put it. I guess he's kind of quirky. He has some interesting kind of movements and facial expressions and seems like he's lost in his own thoughts sometime uh and he's always playing the drums whether it's on his legs or playing a real kit and you see him doing lots of other stuff he's listening to heavy metal all the time while he's doing this financial analysis so the guy's pretty all over the place and i'd say christian bale does a pretty good job of capturing that you get this sense that like you know some of these weird types of people fall into banking because they just have that kind of math mind for it and you really see him as being one of those guys like it's pretty it's pretty clear and telling in your mind for sure as you watch. And again, I'd say he's pretty cool. He's not given some of the best lines or some of the best jokes or anything like that. And, you know, his character is a bit more reserved as opposed to some of the other more flashy personalities on Wall Street that you see in this movie. But I'd say, again, Christian Bale really does a good job with what he's supposed to do. You know, he really nails what he's given, not only what he's given, but what is kind of expected for that character. So, you know, you might not hear a lot of people talking about Christian Bale, even though He's one of the main ones that got the nominations, surprisingly. And I don't necessarily disagree with that, though there is one person in the cast that I wish would have gotten a little bit more praise. We'll hint on that in a little bit. But again, Christian Bale, pretty solid job here. By by no means my favorite Christian Bale performance because there's just too many amazing ones. But this one, I wouldn't say is right up there, but it's a solid addition to his portfolio. All right, let's move on. Steve Carell as Mark Baum, who, again, as I mentioned, he's kind of this head of his own financial team who works under Goldman Sachs and kind of makes some swaps and deals and lots of other business terms that I won't get into. But he's kind of small scale, you know, working with his own team, not necessarily involved in the huge bank, but working on all these markets and, you know, making his deals and negotiations and everything. You know, this will become a little bit more clear, as I mentioned, in the spoiler section, especially, you know, some of his stuff. He works for Goldman Sachs. Some of the stuff will make more sense later. And if you know the true story, you know where I'm getting to. But Steve Carell is pretty solid in this movie. I think Steve Carell is pretty underrated in the realm of kind of dramatic characters. You know what they care about? They care about the ball game. 
or they care about what actress just went into rehab. I think you should try medication. No, no, we agreed if it interfered with work. You hate Wall Street, but maybe it's time to quit. I love my job. You hate your job. I love my job. You're miserable. I love my job. I love my job, honey. Mark. Cynthia, I'm okay. I really am. Hey, hey, hey. No, no, my cap. No, no, That's no. my cap. That's my cap. That is my cap. Not schmuck. There is some emotional scenes he has in this movie where I'd say he's really solid. Uh, he also has some pretty witty dialogue of sometimes when he just gets kind of angry and goes off. It's pretty funny. His wife, played by Marissa Tomei, who I'll touch on later, she mentions at one point that he's always trying to please everybody or make things right. I can't remember what she says. It's one of those two kind of, you know, I guess, positive faults in a person. But anyway, he's always doing that. So you kind of see that he's, you know, always juggling lots of balls. He wears a lot of hats with what he's doing. And, you know, sometimes it just gets to him and he kind of explodes into some expletives and stuff. And it's it's pretty comical. I would say this movie has a lot of those kind of moments. We'll touch on that a little bit more in writing and direction. Actually, a lot a bit more. Uh, and that wasn't grammatically correct anyway, but who cares? But again, Steve Carell, you know, he, he's juggling a lot of stuff in terms of acting as well. He's got some comedy. He's got some real breakdown, probably some of the most emotional moments in the entire movie. And he's got kind of this presence in this movie where you can always tell that like the burden of everything he's dealing with is weighing down on him like it's just the way he walks through the scenes and deals with the people around him and you know always has kind of his eyebrows furrowed and you know he's really focused on what he's doing but you can tell like the weight of everything is kind of crashing down upon him both in his career in his personal life a little bit of everything kind of adding on top of him and you see how it breaks into anger into sadness into how he snaps at some of his co-workers and stuff and Steve Carell really nails that uh, he is one of the people that I'm surprised didn't get a little bit more awards buzz still not the biggest one that I'll talk about probably next but he is right up there with one of the best performances in his career I would say honestly a lot of people wouldn't say that because you know he's got all his comedy and he's got a lot of dramatic performances maybe he's a bit more well known for maybe a little miss sunshine probably foxcatcher but i'd say he really nails this role makes a lot out of a character that could have been a boring boss type and portrays someone that you can sympathize with he's got a lot of issues he has to deal with and it's definitely clear throughout the movie. We'll talk about his, you know, emotional and comedic presence a little bit more in this movie. He's definitely a bit more of a dynamic character in terms of emotional range than Michael Burry is, played by Christian Bale, obviously. So he has more to work with, for sure. And, of course, he gives a really incredible performance. You know, it's due in part to that, but I think he really developed a persona for this character that not a lot of people might have been able to do. And it's really clear that Steve Carell has a lot of talent, not only in comedy, but in drama and definitely in movies where he can kind of flip between both. This is a perfect example. All right, let's move on. We have Jared Vanette, the character that is, and he is portrayed by Ryan Gosling. Now, I haven't talked about Ryan Gosling that much in any of these podcasts. Uh, I want to mention that Ryan Gosling is one of my favorite actors. I will do an episode at one point where I go through my top 10 actors and probably my top 10 actresses as well. Maybe those will be two different episodes so I can expound a bit more upon each person. But he is right up there, and I won't give away the ranks and stuff like that. I've already mentioned that Joaquin Phoenix is up there, and of course Christian Bale is up there, and I think I just said that, you know, 30 seconds ago. I can't remember. And of course, Ryan Gosling is up there. So... Ryan Gosling nails comedy. A lot of people don't realize this about Ryan Gosling. If you've seen him in this, if you've seen him in Nice Guys, this man can do some comedy. And I just don't understand why he doesn't get cast in some of these roles a little bit more. In no means do I think that, you know, his drama is bad. 
I just think he's really underappreciated in the realm of comedy. His drama's amazing. I just think, you know, his comedy should be harnessed a little bit more in Hollywood. And it's pretty clear here because this guy has tons of witty dialogue throughout the movie, tons of jokes, tons of one-liners, tons of kind of fun chemistry and ensemble effect with the people around him as he's doing business pitches and stuff like that. That's my quant. Your what? My quantitative. My math specialist. Look at him. You notice anything different about him? Look at his face. That's pretty racist. Look at his eyes. I'll give you a hint. His name's Yang. He won a national math competition in China. He doesn't even speak English. Yeah, I'm sure of the math. He's probably the most well-written character in the movie because of this comedy. And while he doesn't have as much of a character arc as Christian Bale or Steve Carell do, I think he's just such an electric presence in the scenes he's in. And there's really no other way to put it except that. He's really kind of electric. He's just so fun to watch in this movie. Not only does he serve as kind of a businessman who's navigating all this stuff, and he's one of the main kind of proprietors, I guess, of what Christian Bale's character comes up with of betting against the housing market, which, you know, I'll talk about it in the plot, but, you know, that was such an unheard of thought at that moment in time. But he also serves as kind of a narrator, which, you know, that works pretty well. He's breaking the fourth wall from time to time. And and it all just works really well. When the movie first started, I didn't think I was going to like the narration fourth wall aspect as much. But I really grew to like it in this movie. I'll probably talk about that a little bit in the spoiler section as well. But again, Ryan Gosling is totally comedic in this movie. He does have maybe a sprinkling of drama. Really, I can't think of a single scene where you're like, Oh man, Ryan Gosling, such emotional acting. Really, it's just you know you laughing at what he's saying because he's really got some good comedic delivery. I'm, I'm telling you, I just wish he was in more of these comedies. I wish you know he did all these dramas that he's doing, many of which I love, but also did a little bit more of this comedy because he's awesome in this. He's awesome in Nice Guys, and I feel like I'm missing one other big Ryan Gosling comedy. But you know, I'll just move on for now. So Ryan Gosling, awesome. All right, now we're starting to get into some of the lesser characters. Uh, there's still a few big names in this movie, and then there's a bunch of smaller names that play kind of ensemble people. Uh, so let's go through some of the big names that are in this movie uh, before we move on to the ensemble. So we have Mirza Tomei as Steve Carell's wife, and, I mean, she's fine. She, I feel like this could have been played by literally anyone. This part could have been played by literally anyone because she doesn't really do much in this movie. She consoles Steve Carell when he's having kind of an emotional scene. And she does give a really good performance in that one scene, but she's really in that scene and one other really brief scene. And when she first popped up in the movie, I was like, oh, Marissa Tomei's in this. And then you never see her again into one other scene. You're like, oh, yeah, Marissa Tomei's in this. And then you don't see her again. And then the movie ends. And you're like, why was Marissa Tomei in that? But, I mean, that one scene is really good. I'd say she does great in that scene, really. But, you know, I, I think a lot of people could have played that role. It was fine. She wasn't given many scenes or a lot of writing and definitely no character arcs or anything like that. So she was fine. Brad Pitt as Ben Rickert, who's sort of this, like, overly environmentalist like kind of offbeat you know kind of strange guy who used to work in kind of this economic world and has since moved away from it but is now helping out two other guys that want to get into it and so he's kind of this mentor figure even though he's kind of weird and as i mentioned kind of offbeat in a way uh and he's pretty unique he has kind of this interesting persona in this movie and he definitely looks the part i would say in this movie he's got you know kind of the hair and the appearance and everything and I'd say he has some funny moments because he's just so strange, some of the things he does. Uh, but he's not in this movie very much either. There is a lot of characters in this movie, as I mentioned. He's not in this movie a ton. He's fine with what he does. I'm a very big Brad Pitt fan, and I believe Brad Pitt is 
supremely underrated because a lot of people think, oh, Brad Pitt, and they just kind of give him so much crap because, you know, he's kind of this big shot Hollywood guy in a lot of people's eyes. And a lot of people don't recognize that he has a ton of talent, both comedic and dramatic. In this, he's a bit more comedic, not necessarily in his writing, but just in the kind of persona that he's playing. He's playing it totally serious, but some of his qualities are just so weird. But again, I'd say, you know, he's fine. I really like Brad Pitt, but this is, you know, by no means one of his best performances. I'd say he's fine, though. He does, you know, an okay job. Nothing special, really. All right, now we really get into some of the ensemble. I do want to mention there's a lot of celebrity cameos in this movie. We have Margot Robbie explaining some financial things to you. She's pretty funny doing that. Uh, We have Anthony Bourdain, rest in peace. He's explaining some stuff to you. He's pretty funny while he does that. We have Selena Gomez. She's pretty funny as she explains some stuff. They're all just kind of funny because it's like, oh, wow, why is this random celebrity explaining financial stuff to us? That's actually a tool that's used in the movie where Ryan Gosling will look at the camera and say, oh, so you don't understand what a CDO is? Well, here's Margot Robbie in a bathtub to explain it to you. So we'll talk about that aspect of the movie later. But, you know, they're all pretty funny just because of their sheer presence in the movie to begin with. And the fact that they're being directly acknowledged as their names, they're not playing anyone. So, you know, that's fine. But on to the ensemble. So I'm probably going to mess up some names. I just want to go through all the actors, and then I'll talk about the characters. I probably won't even correlate them to the actors. But the cast is so huge that it's going to be kind of hard for me to find some of these guys and know who's who. But I'm going to do my best. John Magaro and Finn Whitrock as Charlie Geller and Jamie Shipley, respectively. And they're basically these two young entrepreneurs who are learning of Michael Burry's stuff and of, you know, Jared Vanette's pitch as well and saying maybe this is something. And they're the ones that then get Brad Pitt to kind of mentor them. And they're pretty underrated in this movie. In a movie with so many big stars who give awesome performances, these guys are right up there. They're really funny. They have great chemistry with each other. They don't develop fantastic characters. They're just kind of, you know, general, almost kind of standard characters, don't have many specific qualities to them but they're pretty fun to watch i would say as they kind of bounce lines back and forth off of each other and have to deal with the blows they're given they react very in very funny ways to lots of the stuff they get both you know booms and busts in the market and stuff like that they're like when they're celebrating or when they're you know feeling like they failed it's pretty fun to watch so i like to mention those guys i'd say they're slightly underrated in this movie not a lot of people talking about them and i think they're pretty good uh so the other group i wanted to talk about and i think i might have found some of the actors it would be rafi spall i believe as i mentioned as danny moses uh hamish linklater as porter collins and jeremy strong is the big one as Vinny daniel and they're sort of steve carell's team if i remember correctly i know jeremy strong is on that team i'm 90 percent sure rafi spall is on that team and Hamish Linkletter is probably on that team as well. Why are these people all having hard names for me to pronounce? Anyway, Jeremy Strong is the big one. He's the one I'm going to talk about. The other two are fine. You know, they're pretty good. They've got some good chemistry. But Jeremy Strong's pretty good. He's another one that just like the two guys I just mentioned uh, who are, you know, being mentored by Brad Pitt is pretty underrated in this movie. He's got kind of this tough guy, New Yorker kind of persona going, but it's not overblown by any metric. He's like chewing gum in every scene and he's a bit kind of a hard talker, I guess you could say. And it's just really funny as he kind of clashes with Steve Carell from time to time. That's not a big plot point in this movie, but when that happens, it's pretty interesting to watch as he's, you know, trying to deal with Steve Carell. He's, you know, he's got a lot on his mind, obviously. And I'd say this guy is also really good. Like I said, this movie has a lot of big stars, a lot of big names. You know, Marissa Tomei probably gets talked about more than Jeremy Strong. But Jeremy Strong is really awesome in this movie. I think this guy, who I actually hadn't really heard of before, I sort of recognized him, and I didn't know from what. And when I looked through his IMDb, I couldn't find anything that I had seen him in. So, you know, for all I know, I just thought I recognized him. 
But he's been doing a lot of stuff recently, such as Detroit, Maui's Game, Black Mass, Selma, The Judge, and a couple other things. And I'm actually just now coming to find out that he played Lee Harvey Oswald in a movie called Parkland that was apparently recounting everything that happened at Dallas's Parkland Hospital on the day, obviously, that Kennedy was shot. I didn't know he was in that. I didn't know that movie existed, honestly. But again, he's in a lot of these kind of recent movies, some of these some of, some of these bigger movies, Zero Dark Thirty, Lincoln. I wouldn't say not, that these are necessarily recent, but movies that are, I guess, semi-modern that you've probably heard of. But again, Jimmy Strong, pretty good in this movie. He's pretty funny. He's got some, you know, nice, just general line delivery. I'd say he's got a persona to him that a lot of actors playing this part could have just completely ignored, and he could have just been another one of the guys in suits in this movie, but he's pretty good. So just keep that in mind. All right. I think that's about it for acting. I just want to recap by saying the ensemble in this movie is awesome. Everybody in this movie who plays one of these, you know, stockbrokers or, you know, one of the guys that's just laughing in the face of of Christian Bale or Steve Carell or Ryan Gosling is awesome. Everybody nails what they have completely. In a movie which could have been like many other movies, one that had a big ensemble in which everybody's just pretty basic and standard. There's interesting qualities to everyone on these, you know, financial teams. And there's interesting jokes and one-liners given by all of them. And even, again, some of the characters that just sit across from the negotiation table for one single scene. They're really fun to watch. And you get a contrast between them laughing in the faces of Christian Bale, as I said. And then, of course, when it all comes crashing down upon them and they realize he was right about the housing market eventually basically collapsing. You know, ensemble effects are fantastic. One of my favorite aspects of acting and I guess general and general energy in a movie. And this movie really nails it. I gotta say, it's probably one of the best ensembles I've ever seen. And that's saying a lot because ensembles are one of those things I really enjoy and, you know, I don't, and, and I get pretty critical with some of them as we'll probably see throughout the time of this podcast. But awesome one here. And again, all the big stars, most notably Steve Carell, Ryan Gosling, and Christian Bale are awesome. And now it's time for me to pick a best performance. This is really tough for me, and I'm just going to put it out there now. It's probably between Steve Carell and Ryan Gosling, and I'm literally going to decide this on the spot. Because the problem here is, Ryan Gosling, to me, is my favorite character in this movie. He's my favorite presence in this movie, and he's just awesome in this movie. But Steve Carell may give a better performance because he has a better range to work with, and he really executes it well, both comedy and drama and may give a better overall performance, even though Ryan Gosling is nailing everything he does. But now, in my gut, I gotta say Ryan Gosling. Ryan Gosling is hysterical in this movie. Again, I love everything Ryan Gosling is in, and he nails it here. He's so funny. Uh, He has so much energy and enthusiasm and charisma in this movie. You know, I think a lot of it is the writing in this movie. The writing in this movie is phenomenal. I'll talk about that in the writing section. But he kills his part here. Steve Carell loses it just by a hair, because Steve Carell is equally, almost equally awesome in this movie. Don't let that... If I could pick a best performance that I could pick two, it would be them two by a mile. Christian Bale is pretty solid in this movie, but I think they just have so much to work with and execute it so perfectly that they got to be up there as the best two. But, you know, officially I have to pick a best one, and Ryan Gosling has to be it because he's just hysterical in this movie. All right, so that wraps up acting, one of the longest acting segments I've ever done on this podcast. And this spoiler-free section is probably going to shake out to be very long, but again, as I mentioned, the spoiler-full section will probably be semi-short, so, you know, it'll all balance out in the end. All right, but that's about it for acting, so now let's move on to general direction. So as I mentioned, this movie is directed by Adam McKay. This is his dramatic debut. This is his first attempt at kind of a serious movie. It's his first attempt at a true story. It's basically his first attempt at something other than just kind of stupid, you know, kind of aimless 
goofy Will Ferrell style comedy. And I'd say he does a pretty great job. Now, the thing about this movie is I'm a little split on both the directing and kind of the editing, and I'll talk about editing later, in that in some cases it really, really works, and in some cases it falls a little flat or at least feels a little off for the tone of the movie. Now, let me just put it out there now. He makes this whole movie very exciting, whether it be editing, whether it be overall, you know, how well these scenes are paced, and, you know, some of that is the writing for sure. But this movie could have been so boring so easily because it's a movie about banking. It's a movie about finance. Nobody really is interested in that stuff when they go to the movies, you know? And this movie makes that interesting, whether it be celebrity cameos that are thrown in, whether it be weird pop culture kind of inserts and overlays and clips that are shown from TV shows and various other things. It's pretty interesting what he does with the directing here. This is one of the most interestingly directed movies I've seen in a long time. And I just can't imagine a lot of directors doing this. I think it is that comedic background that Adam McKay has that gives this movie this kind of flair to it. This could have been a very kind of tied up and stiff movie about the whole issue and the mortgage bonds and everything and could have been lost in all these technical terms. But the directors and the writers make it fun. They make it easy to understand. And I think it really gives this movie a huge boost. Like I said, this movie could have ridiculously easily have been super boring and super complicated and not interesting at all and instead it's one of the most riveting movies I've seen in a while it's not a movie where you're checking your watch because there's always something happening there's great back and forth it's just witty all the time and I'm just going to kind of cross into writing as I mentioned this direction here I won't separate those into two segments let me hit writing real quick the writing in this movie is fantastic like I said it's witty it's fun but yet there's these emotional and kind of heartbreaking moments that you know contrast you know you've got the characters themselves and they're t- dealing with you know success and failure but you also have you know their inevitable success if you know the whole story which I'll touch on plot again a little bit more in the spoiler full section but I mean this is a true story you probably know it many of you lived through it but the moments when this story is wrapping up and you know the whole economy is basically collapsing it's got weight to it it's not just you know brushed upon you get this real sense of dread hanging throughout the entire in the entire third act of this movie as these things that Christian Bale said were going to happen start coming to fruition. And it's really impressive how the director handles that. This entire movie has been so upbeat and fun to watch. And then you've just got this sense like the whole world is collapsing in this third act. And it really parallels the true story in a way. If you think about it, you know, it's everybody thought they were doing great. The economy was booming. All the bankers were just swimming in cash and boom, it was all gone in an instant. And you definitely get that feeling in the third act of this movie, which I loved. And like I said, the writing is just spot on. Lots of great jokes, you know, and it's not just limited to one character. Everybody's got their own charisma in their own persona, and it's pretty comedic. And there's lots of these touches that, you know, make this movie a little bit interesting, like Christian Bale drumming all the time. Even if that's based on the true story of Michael Burry, that could have been easily left out because it is fairly irrelevant. But it just adds to the scenes because you've got this, you know, heavy metal as he's doing stuff and these compilations of him analyzing numbers. And that's something I want to mention that this movie does that I love is montages, whether it be Christian Bale analyzing numbers or showing you like how the economy is doing well or what kind of lifestyles the bankers are living in. I love all the montages in this movie and they're used very well. Montages can easily be overblown and these fit very well within the parameters of this movie, which like I said, this movie is just so fun. Could have been so bleak, but it's so fun. It's one of the most entertaining movies I've seen in a long time and it's about banking. I mean, it's unbelievable what the directors what the director and the writers were able to do with this story to make it so 
gripping. And, and this movie could have been seen as Oscar bait. You know, true stories often are, especially with a nice cast like this. And it just is marketed that way. But this movie makes it so fun and interesting and really appeals to a general audience as well, not just critics. And at the same time, the movie provides a pretty, you know, interesting message that, you know, you got to kind of watch out for some of these practices because the whole world collapsed and the movie ends on kind of a sour note. And I'll touch on that in the spoiler full section as well. But again, just to wrap up on directing, I could go on and on about this directing, talk about it way more than I did with Bronson when I was kind of analyzing that and really just rambling about that. So I'll keep this a little bit short and sweet on the direction this is one of my favorite directed movies I've seen in a very long time for something that is just basic subject matter. I mean, there's many movies you can get very experimental or interesting or, uh, you know, unique in directing style just based on the subjects and stuff like that. But for this to be just kind of a bland, normal topic and for it to be one of the most fun movies in terms of direction I've ever seen, I mean, that's impressive. And I'd say that's a great dramatic debut from Adam McKay, who I don't think has done any dramatic work since. In fact, I don't know what else he's done since. Uh, obviously, Anchorman too. But I would definitely like to see him hit up some more true stories like this one and put his kind of flair on it because it made it ridiculously interesting. You've got fourth wall breaks. You've got you know cameos that are really blatant. They're not just cameos of someone playing a character. It's actually like, hey, here's Margot Robbie, and she's going to explain to you these economic terms. So they make everything very easy to understand all these technical terms the writers do. So you, as long as you're generally paying attention, you will understand all these you know, crazy banking terms, and it won't be too complicated. You just got to pay attention. And it's not heavy-handed either. I mean, it's pretty funny, actually, to see Margot Robbie sitting in a bathtub explaining to you how these mortgage-backed securities work, and it makes it really easy to understand. I think there's no... I've heard people complaining that it's too complicated, and I just say, watch the movie. It's the most obviously laid out movie in the world because they knew it was going to be a complicated subject. I mean, this is no inception where you have to pay attention. If you don't, you'll be totally lost. You can still just sort of pay attention to this movie and you'll understand all these crazy terms because it's laid out perfectly for you. You just got to be you don't even have to be looking for it. It's right there the whole time. And I think the writers really nailed that as well. It could have been lost in all these technical jargon and stuff like that. But instead, it's laid out really easy with all these unique flares of montages and colors and just great dialogue that makes this one of the most interestingly made movies I've seen in a long time. So real props to Adam McKay, his writing, and the other writer whose name is escaping me right now. Awesome direction in this movie. In terms of score, nothing really pops into my head. Um, I know there obviously are some heavy metal tracks that are used, none that really jump out. And probably, I, and probably I won't play any clips for this score because I don't have much to say. Nonetheless, score is fine. Nothing really jumps out to me. Uh, really, I only talk about score when it is something that really stuck out or just perfectly created an atmosphere. Let's talk about the editing in this movie, though, because this is a very interestingly edited movie. And as I mentioned with some of the direction and the writing, which I didn't really touch on more with the direction. I think the direction is pretty spot on throughout the entire movie, despite what I said earlier. It's really the editing that is kind of 50-50 because sometimes you have these unique montages that I love and sometimes you have these funny cuts and fourth wall breaks, uh, especially you know with Ryan Gosling being kind of the narrator and he's talking directly to the camera for probably half of his scenes. Uh, and a lot of times that works and I think it's really funny when it does. Other times it's a little weird when they have like, they have certain quotes that pop up to the screen that are pretty apt to the situations, but it just feels a little out of, t not out of touch, but out of place, I guess I could say. It just doesn't feel exactly right. The movie opens with a quote, and there's a quote about halfway through. The quotes are pretty, you know, apt to the situation. It does fit in the movie a little bit, but I don't know. I just wasn't a big fan of that, uh, 
that kind of touch as well as some of the kind of overlays of pop culture. One sticks in my head where they show like a picture of South Park and stuff as they're talking about pop culture and economy booming and stuff like that. That montage was okay. I thought some of it is a little weird, a little quirky in a bad way in that it kind of takes you out of the whole movie. Uh, But some of it works fantastically. Some of these edits, some of these montages and some of these kind of comedic timing for cuts and for, you know, fourth wall breaks and stuff like that. Uh, some of them are fantastic, others not so much, but I think probably for the most part they are for the better. I do want to mention on the writing real qu- real quickly, because I'll probably forget about the whole true story aspect. They literally tell you when they're not exactly following the true story. In fact, two of the young entrepreneurs just happened to discover Ryan Gosling's pitch about the housing market and its impending collapse, and they turned to the camera and said, no, we didn't actually find this book, how cool would have that been? No, we just read an article in a newspaper and, you know, but this is done for dramatic effect. And I think that's really funny that the director points it out. You know, that's kind of a, not not a cliched thing, but a lot of directors will do that when they know they're following a trope. They'll kind of call themselves out on it to hopefully take your attention away from it. But I think here it actually works for the better. So besides some kind of strange moments with some of the editing and some of the direction, maybe I'll remember to mention some of them in the spoilerful section. I think the editing and the whole style of this movie is very, very intriguing. I would like to see more true stories kind of done in this style, especially the ones that could be a bit boring. But yeah, so that's about it for, you know, score and all that. So I already kind of went through some of the technical things. Uh, A couple other things to throw out then, I guess. We have, you know, lighting and cinematography. Nothing ridiculously special. I feel like there's some filters put on certain scenes. It might just be me remembering this incorrectly, but I think there are some kind of grains and stuff like that that make everything look, you know, gray or make everything look a little fuzzy and stuff like that to kind of follow this whole banking bleak atmosphere kind of effect. But, you know, that's fine. And cinematography, there's nothing that really sticks out to me unless you consider fourth wall breaks cinematography, which is definitely more of the writing and direction. Uh, So cinematography is pretty standard. There's a couple cool looking shots that I'll try to remember by the time I get to the spoiler full section. Other thing I want to mention with uh, editing is that there's a couple like spliced in flashbacks. These don't do much for me. They're just kind of there. And sorry, I'm kind of skipping around the writing, the editing, the direction, all of that stuff, because there is a lot to take in with this movie. It's kind of a lot of different effects and styles put into play. And I just want to kind of spew them all out onto you uh, rather than divide them into segments, because they really all work towards one final product. They're not kind of compartmentalized as some of these other movies, you know, with, you know, great cinematography, but the editing's okay. I think everything really builds to one great movie in this film. All right, so I think I've gone through everything from the acting to the direction to all the technical things. Uh, as usual, I always feel like I'm missing something in the technical things because there's so much to handle. But I would say this movie definitely has a unique stamp, unique style that is definitely due in part to Adam McKay's repertoire of movies, I would say. And it definitely is awesome. So let's go on to how much money this movie made before I get on to my ranking, my rating of this movie. So according to IMDb, which keep in mind that some of its statistics on what's international, what's domestic, can be a little weird. So I'll just read you what it says. You can do a lot more research if you want to. I'll have to stop saying this in every episode eventually, but I'll just put it out there. Had an estimated budget of $28 million, which I'd say is slightly on the modest size. But I think it's because, you know, you've got this guy making his dramatic debut and, you know, some of his movies aren't very critically acclaimed. Uh, And it's kind of a unique story that maybe not everybody cares to hear. But I think a lot of that budget was used for the better in some of these editing things. And, you know, obviously they landed a pretty awesome cast, as I mentioned. 
And its overall gross worldwide, according to IMDb, is $133,346,506. Now, despite all the Oscar buzz this movie got, and that's a pretty solid paycheck, I wish this movie would have done better. I was one of the people that saw the trailers for this movie and was just like, who wants to watch a movie about banking? And by the time I got around to seeing it, I was like, man, I wish I saw this when it was getting all this Oscar buzz because it truly deserves it. I see now why it is. I figured it's just one of those Oscar shoe-in movies as there are a lot year by year, but this one really deserves it. All I know is this should have been way up in the running for Oscars. I'm not going to look at the other nominees. Maybe it should have won, but I don't know what else was there. All I know is this movie was very awesome. Wish it would have made a little bit more money because it is that awesome. And as I've alluded to, I think you can tell I really love this movie and let's get into the ratings because of that. And as I said five seconds ago, I was going to talk about the plot and I changed my mind because I think you can listen. This is a rare occurrence where I think even if you haven't seen this movie, you should probably just listen to the spoilerful section because it is a true story. It's just going to play out the way you already know and... There's no big plot twist or anything like that. It's just kind of watching how some of these scenes unfold. So I think it's probably just worth listening to me go through the movie, and you won't get anything ruined for you. You'll just know if you want to watch it or not, I think. But let's just go into the ratings, and our rating system for today will be CDOs. That's one of those technical terms that I'm not even going to try to explain yet. Uh, We'll do that a little bit later, I think. But out of 10 CDOs, I give this one a 9. This movie is awesome. I can't believe how good this movie is. When this movie started, I was like... I'm going to hate this movie just because of the subject matter. Even though a lot of my favorite actors were in it. Well, not necessarily a lot, but some solid actors were in it. And, you know, the director I hadn't really looked up, but, you know, the trailers looked at semi-interesting. Even though, again, the subject matter, I think, turned a lot of people off to this movie. So I didn't have high expectations just because I thought I was going to be bored by the content. But this movie is ridiculously awesome. You should definitely check this one out. We do need to do the Why You Should Watch It segment of this show, which I completely forgot. We have so many segments, and I don't write any of them down ahead of the show, so I need to definitely start doing that. But just back to the rating. This movie is so cool. Such a great flair. Way better than I would have anticipated. Great acting, great everything. And let's just go into the Why You Should Watch It so I can rant on it a little bit more. Why You Should Watch This Movie. We like to do this segment every show because there is always a reason why you should watch a movie, for better or for worse, to learn what to do or what not to do. And in this movie, it's what to do. This movie has fantastic acting. If you like acting, if you like just well-acted movies, this is way up there for me. If you like movies that are oddly comedic, movies that are comedic that you wouldn't have expected them to be comedic, this is a perfect example, probably the first one that will come to mind for me from now on. If you like really well-written and just kind of witty, fast-paced dialogue, this is also a perfect example. And if you want some kind of unique, almost strange directing, I think this is up there because it's one of those ones that you are watching and you're like, this is so strange for a movie about banking, but it works the entire time. So if you want kind of a movie where the act, the kind of quality strangely works, even though you feel like it shouldn't or you think it's just kind of weird, it works the whole time, and I think this movie has so much going for it. Again, the writing, the editing, fantastic acting and direction, I just love it. So I think I could go on about everything in this movie for why you should watch it, but in the end, it's probably the big three things that a movie should have. Acting, writing, directing. Kills it on all three of those fronts. And some technical aspects, like I said, the editing is pretty 50-50, but I like it a lot of the time. And, you know, some of the other things are pretty standard. Score, cinematography, blah, blah, blah. All right, so that's it for the Why You Should Watch It section, which means it's about time to wrap up the spoiler-free section of The Big Short, Episode 6. But, like I said, you should probably just stick around for the spoiler-free section because there's no big spoilers I can really give you. It's really just me going through, you know, kind of scene by scene, talking about what I like, what I didn't like, and just 
in this section, we really just get a chance to geek out about movies, which I think is something that's also pretty fun to listen to, especially if you liked this movie and you already saw it. And if you haven't seen it, I would say still listen to this whole podcast, but then go out and see it. This movie is awesome. All right, again, that's about it for the spoiler-free section of CineStudy. So thank you for listening. Be sure to leave reviews. Be sure to subscribe. We're on Instagram now, and I'll put out an episode eventually showing that we're on Instagram. We're on YouTube with a visual component to the show. It doesn't really add anything to the show. I just wanted search engine optimization, let's be honest here. Uh, and we'll have some other social media platforms arising eventually, and I'll probably release an episode when that stuff is all finalized, website, all that stuff, blah, blah, blah. But again, thank you for listening to Study. Be sure to tell your friends, you know, get the word out. We're just getting started, but I really want to get the ball rolling on this whole thing. But again, that's it for the spoiler-free section of the big short of Study. So thank you for listening. And if you're still listening, welcome to the spoiler section. And I kind of just messed up that catchphrase we always use, but who cares? Let's just get into it. The following audio will contain countless spoilers and discussions of significant character arcs and plot points. You've been warned. Don't ruin the movie for yourself. Unless, of course, do you want to? Study is not liable. Alright, welcome to the spoiler section for The Big Short. Now, as I mentioned, I want to make this spoiler section a little bit quicker than some of our past ones, and that's for a couple of reasons. One, you probably don't want to hear me ramble on and on about a movie, period, let alone this movie that's about banking uh, that you just might not be interested in the content of. Two, the true story's out there, as I already mentioned, so you can go look up all those facts. And three, I just want to kind of streamline this whole, you know, spore section. This kind of goes hand in hand with uh, reason number one. But I just want to keep this brief, just roll through some of my highlights. You know, I'm not going to go as in-depth and, you know, the other reason is there's not as much in terms of cinematography and all that stuff as there is in other more artistic movies, such as the ones we've already covered with Bronson and You Were Never Really Here. But with that being said, I'm already taking up time from this far section, so let's just jump right into it. So the movie opens, it says, based on a true story, and then we have a quote to start us off. And it says, it ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. And I guess this kind of foreshadows the whole idea that once all these guys are figuring out what's going to go on with the housing market... That becomes the big issue. It's, if they had been in, in the dark completely, it wouldn't have been a hassle until it happened. Whereas now, it's even more stressful than it if it just occurred. At least that's how I read this quote. But anyway, movie opens and we have pretty much a boring banking scene with uh, you know Ryan Gosling's talking about how banking's a snooze. Bonds especially, you know, you sell bonds, you give them to your nephew. Maybe he makes a couple hundred bucks when he's 30 or something like that. Uh, and that basically it's boring and you get this whole atmosphere that's very black and white and gray and boring music. But then he says, until this guy shows up, and I forget his name, but until this guy shows up, that revolutionizes the banking and bonds section of banking particularly. I forget his name, as I mentioned, but the whole atmosphere changes. We get some, you know, more color grading and we get some nice upbeat music. And it's just this really cool tone shift right out of the gate as this guy introduces what's called the mortgage-backed security. And it's basically saying, who doesn't pay their mortgage? So let's take a mortgage, bundle them together with a bunch of other really good mortgages, you know, rated A or triple A mortgages, I guess you would say, you know, ones that are, you know, high in terms of reliability. Let's bundle those all together and make a bond out of that. And, you know, who doesn't pay their mortgages? These are always going to have really high ratings and they're going to do awesome. So he makes those and Ryan Gosling says that basically banking explodes. You know, bankers are celebrating, they're starting lavish lifestyles. Uh, and we see kind of a montage of how the world and the economy is progressing without even realizing that banking is the cog driving the whole machine. We see some pop culture references to Top Gun and South Park and stuff, and it's saying, like, 
the world is exploding and you didn't even realize it's because of the mortgage-backed security. But then he says it all came crashing down. And uh, he says, basically, there were a couple outsiders who looked at all this and they noticed that this was going to happen. And he said they did something that all the suckers at Wall Street who eventually you know, lost all their jobs and money didn't do. And that is, they looked simple enough. Then we get the title as Christian Bale playing the drums on his knees fades in and Basically, we get kind of a Christian Bale backstory for Michael Burry. He's talking about how he lost his eye when he was a kid, and now he has a glass eye. He's talking about how, you know, some of these things with the markets are a little shady. He's just kind of generally, we kind of establish his personality of him being a little bit skeptical of kind of the banking world. And just, you know, he's very curious about it. He's always asking questions about it as he's interviewing a guy for a new job, potentially. But what's funny is he's not even really asking the guy any questions. He's really just talking to the guy. And when the guy finally says, so uh, do I get the job? You know, Christian Bale is so distracted and just thinking. He's like, yeah, yeah, sure. And you heard the clip I played for Christian Bale's acting earlier where he said, isn't it weird that when the tech market collapsed, housing actually went up? And, you know, the guy says, no, housing's always stable. And Michael Burry's like, no, there's something weird about that. And he says, I want you to find the top 20 bonds. I don't want you to just tell me what they are. I want you to tell me what's in them the thousands and thousands of mortgages. And so begins another montage. We already saw the pop culture one earlier, and now we get one of Christian Bale basically crunching numbers. We see that their business has been doing pretty well, but he's crunching numbers, reading mortgage-backed securities, and the like, all while playing the drums. We are then introduced to Mark Baum, Steve Carell's character, who basically goes into a therapy group, and you get kind of a nice little expository scene without it being expository. It's really just establishing his character as somebody who's not afraid to tell people when they're wrong, who's not afraid to call people out, who's just generally, you know, he doesn't take anything from anyone. And it's also clear he has his own personal problems because he is at this therapy group, the reason why we'll come to find out in a little. Go back to Christian Bale, see him crunching some more numbers, you know, see him looking down spreadsheets and stuff like that. And he's going through everything. And then he gets on a call with one of his main investors because I failed to mention he is kind of the, I guess, the head of a hedge fund. So he basically, you know, they get investors to make, you know, risky investments and just capitalize on them. And he's talking to one of his main investors and saying, I'm looking at shorting the housing market. Shorting meaning bet against. And that's unheard of. The housing market's so solid. That's so weird. Why would he do that? And he's saying, trust me, I read them. Like, these are crazy. These are some risky stuff. We need to look into this. I'm thinking about shorting it. And sure enough, Ryan Gosling comes on screen and he basically says, uh, if you don't know what just happened, here's Margot Robbie to explain it to you. And I mentioned this earlier, basically Margot Robbie makes a cameo along with some other celebrities where she's sitting uh, in a bubble bath and she just explains to you some of the things about the banking, like how you know people in the banks wanted to create more mortgage-backed securities, even with riskier and riskier investments because they were running out of good mortgages, but they wanted to keep the profit machine rolling. So they're making really risky ones. Uh, or subprime ones is the terminology, and selling them. And, and, you know, it's only a matter of time before these kind of blow up in their face because they're very risky mortgages. I mean, that's pretty self-explanatory. Basically, Louis Rainieri's mortgage funds were amazingly profitable for the big banks. They made billions and billions on their 2% fee they got for selling each of these funds. But then they started running out of mortgages to put in them. After all, there are only so many homes and so many people with good enough jobs to buy them, right? So the banks started filling these bonds with riskier and riskier mortgages. Thank you, Benjo. That way, they can keep that profit machine churning, right? By the way, these risky mortgages are called subprime. So whenever you hear subprime, think shit. 
Our friend Michael Burry found out that these mortgage bonds that were supposedly 65% AAA were actually just mostly full of shit. So now he's going to short the bonds, which means to bet against. Got it? Anyway, after this kind of funny cameo, you know, one of the scenes most people probably remember from this movie, and definitely a highlight uh, of the movie artistically is these kind of funny cameos to explain you the plot. Uh, we go back to Christian Bale. He's saying, look, I read these bonds. I read what was in them. These are insane. I'm going to bet against them. I'm going to short them. And the investor is still like, yo, that's crazy. But then we go back to Steve Carell. He's walking on the street. You know, he's, we get another kind of example of how he's skeptical of everything. There's a flashback to how he was questioning the word of God. He was reading the Bible and finding inconsistencies in it. Uh, but we see him, you know, talking to his wife. He's kind of feigning, you know, happiness with everything, saying he loves his job. This is, again, a clip I played earlier. And the wife, played by Marissa Tomei, brings up that his brother actually committed suicide. Uh, and this is a pretty weak part of the movie, in my opinion, and it has no relevance really to the story that he has this personal problem it's something i kind of wish was excluded it has a good emotional scene later on but i just found it pretty unnecessary this kind of arc with him and it's not really an arc it's just you know something that you can take into account with this character but then we see christian bale is taking advantage of these bonds he read that he knows are going to collapse he's going around to banks like goldman sachs and he's saying i'm going to uh bet against the housing market can i buy some swaps to do this. I guess the swaps is kind of the tool they use. Again, I'm pretty shaky on all this financial stuff. This spoiler section is probably going to be one of the weakest ones yet because of all this financial stuff, but I'll try to get through it to the best of my ability. Again, I want to keep this section slightly short. So he's going in there like, yeah, if you're going to offer us free money because housing is never going to collapse, uh, we're going to take it. So, you know, we're prepared to offer you $5 million in these bonds. And Christian Bale just goes, can I make it $100 million? And the people there are like, uh, yeah, of course you can. And so he walks out. They're kind of laughing as he walks out. And we see a montage of him going around. And what's funny is you know he's hustling all these people. They think that he's an idiot. But you know how the story ends. So you know that this guy's getting the upper leg. So it's really funny to see all these kind of snide bankers laughing, laughing right in his face and knowing that their impending doom is on its way. Anyway, he keeps getting these investments all while Shake Your Money Maker's playing, showing that he is the hustler, not the bankers, and you know that he knows what he's doing. A uh, quick transition, we get a party where one of the banks who just sold uh, some of these swaps, which apparently didn't even exist before uh, Michael Burry came in asking about them. They made them just for him because they know they're stupid. And word gets around to Ryan Gosling, and he's like, why would this guy be going around town buying, we've come to find out, $1.3 billion dollars? in these credit swaps, which is insane. So we go back to Michael Burry. He's talking with his investor, and his investor's like, you're using up all of Scion Capital's liquidity, which is the hedge fund that Michael Burry runs. And he's like, nah, I got this. And we see some shots around his office that kind of foreshadow this, like a motivational poster that says, I am the master of my fate and the captain of my soul. Pretty obvious what that's hinting at there. And we see some of his economic books and stuff. We also see all these emails scroll in that say, you know, have you lost your mind? Why are you doing this? I'm going to withdraw my you know, my money, because we're not going to pay premiums on all these investments we just made for years and years until something that has never happened, being the housing market collapse, happens. They're not going to just keep paying and then hoping that that happens when it probably won't, and they'll just lose money indefinitely. Now we go on to meet uh, Steve Carell's kind of hedge fund, which it seems to be a hedge fund, and it's kind of established under uh, Morgan Stanley. It's a little bit, you know, iffy how they talk about this, how his 
is under the umbrella of a bigger bank because he didn't want to establish something where he'd be always talking to other investors. I don't know. It's a little bit weird, but he's just know that he's un- under Morgan Stanley. And we kind of are introduced to how weird his kind of staff is, how they all distrust the system. That's, you know, Steve Carell's big quality. He distrusts the system. Uh, and some interesting kind of graphic conversations about uh, potential testicular cancer and interesting things like that. Some more expository things on the other members of his staff, like uh, the main guy who I think his name is Vinny. I, I'm really having trouble remembering some of these names. Pretty sure it's Vinny. And, you know, he's talking about how he doesn't talk about his childhood thing and something like that. It's a pretty funny moment. Lots of great writing in this movie. I'll just kind of hit him as I go. I don't need to keep saying great scene, great writing, great scene, great scene, great line, great dialogue, because all of it is great. I'm just going to put that out there now. I've never once heard some of the dialogue and said, oh, that sounds unnatural. All of this was really funny. But anyway, one of the guys who's working there apparently gets a phone call from Ryan Gosling, Jared Vanette, and turns out that it's the wrong number. He was looking for another Bonds thing, but he was talking about shorting housing. And so the guy who answered the phone under Steve Crow's thing is like, oh yeah, some random idiot was trying to short housing. And so all of them are like, what? Why would someone short housing? And they start looking into it and they find that you know, housing has gone down a little bit actually in the past year and nobody's talking about this. So they're going to go in and listen to what Ryan Gosling has to say. And up next is probably my favorite scene. Definitely the most well-written scene. Definitely the funniest scene in which Ryan Gosling basically pitches his idea of, you know, buying these swaps, let's short the housing market, an idea he got, you know, indirectly from Michael Burry. Let's do it. He's trying to convince them. And it's just really funny to hear his pitch. So he goes around. Steve Carell says, why are you coming here, Mr. Wrong Number? If this is so good, aren't you getting interest elsewhere? And Ryan Gosling's like, oh, yeah. And then you see a montage of people telling him, uh, no way, and laughing in his face, which is a nice little, you know, contrast there. I think that was pretty funny. But Ryan Gosling goes around saying, you know, I smell money at the start of the scene. You know, it's pretty funny what he says. And, and his kind of co-worker, I guess his colleague that's below him, he always is just kind of making fun of him as he goes to, which is pretty funny. But anyway, he starts his pitch, and he's got a Jenga tower that basically represents the different types of bonds. You've got AAA, which are the best bonds, you know, the best mortgages are inside them, and then you got all the way down to the triple B, uh, or to the single B, rather, and those are terrible. Those would be made up of houses where people hardly ever pay their mortgages, and those are, you know, bonds that probably no one should buy. But Ryan Gosling's talking, and he's saying, all of this is a bubble. All of this is going to collapse. If you think about how crazy this is, but he's basically saying like the bankers have gotten greedy. They've made stupid bonds. They form stupid bonds and they're just hoping it doesn't blow up in their face. And Ryan Gosling is saying, this is an opportunity. We can short this. We can make so much money. And, you know, he has a nice little joke about, you know, do you doubt the math? Look at my assistant here. And he's got like this Asian assistant. He's like, notice anything different? He's from China. He won a national math competition. And then that guy breaks the fourth wall and saying, I got second in the national math competition and I do speak, speak English. So it's pretty funny there. But Ryan Gosling continues to pitch this idea. Again, this is probably one of my favorite scenes. The writing in this is just so fast-paced and fun. And, uh, you know, everything's bouncing around. And what's really funny is seeing their kind of reactions to everything Ryan Gosling says about how these bonds have terrible, terrible scores, terrible ratings, and they're being hidden. It's just a great scene overall. And here's a quick clip of it because, you know, I've talked about it enough and I will say this is one of my favorite scenes. And to get an idea of, you know, how cool this dialogue is, how this back and forth really worked out in this scene, uh, I'll play a little bit of it for you right now. Let's see what you got. I'm sorry. You smell that? What is that? What? What's that smell? The cologne? No. Opportunity. No. Money. Okay. I smell money. Okay. Chris, the highest level. Triple A is getting paid first. The lowest rated B's getting paid last, taking on defaults first. Now, obviously, if you're buying B's, you can make more money, but they're a little risky. Sometimes they fail. 
Somewhere along the line, these B's and double B's went from a little risky to dog shit. Where's the trash? I'm talking rock bottom FICO scores. No income verification. Adjustable rates, dog shit. The default rates are already up from one to 4%, fellas. And if they rise to 8%, and they will, a lot of these triple B's are going to zero too. And that, you're too close is an opportunity. How come nobody's talking about this? So you're offering us a chance to short this pile of blocks. How? With something called a credit default swap. It's like insurance on the bond, and if it goes bust, you can make 10 to 1, even 20 to 1 return, and it's already slowly going bust. 10 to 1, 20 to 1? No way. And no one's paying attention. But wait, you are the bank. I mean, you work for the bank. I bet your margins are pretty nice and fat. Let's not talk about my margins, by the way. Being nice and fat. That's a nice shirt. Do they make it for men? Aren't you the bank? I work for the bank. I don't think like a bank. Big bank, small bank, I like to make money. All right? Let me put it this way. I'm standing in front of a burning house, and I'm offering you fire insurance on it. How can these underlying bonds be as bad as you say? It wouldn't be legal. <clears throat> Nobody knows what's in them. Nobody knows what's in the bonds. I've seen some that are 65% AAA rated that I know for a fact are filled with 95% subprime shit with FICOs below 550. Get the fuck out of here. You want me to really blow your mind? When the market deems a bond too risky to buy, what do you think we do with it? Warehouse it on the books? No. We just repackage it with a bunch of other shit that didn't sell and put it into a CDO. Ryan Gosling then talks about CDOs, which is basically this thing where all the really bad mortgages, all the bad mortgage bonds, are put in a little pile and made into a bigger bond. And because there's so many smaller bonds, you know, smaller mortgage-backed securities in this bigger bond, it's considered diversified. So it basically gets an awesome rating, gets like a AAA rating, even though it's made up of really, really, really bad investments. And so Ryan Gosling then has Anthony Bourdain explain that to you, which is a nice little touch again, another one of these cameos. Uh, and then we come back and Ryan Gosling saying, look, everybody at my bank calls me Chicken Little. You, you want to doubt me? I don't care because I like to make money. I don't think like a bank. I want to make money. That's his big thing. And so he's, you know, pitching to these guys. He's authentic. He's not just playing for this bank. He wants to make money. He has an opportunity and it's just him. We get a scene after this where Steve Carell and his team kind of are suspicious of all this, you know, thinking that this is all just too good to be true. Uh, and then we cut to the two young entrepreneurs I mentioned after. They're in the lobby of a big bank. And they basically want to come in and do investments with this big bank to grow their own small kind of fund. Uh, and they basically get laughed out of the lobby because they don't have what's called an ISDA, which is basically a certification saying that they're big enough to sit at the table with the big boys, I guess you could say. Uh, and they're off by a long shot. So, you know, there's a quote on the thing that says, trying to be a high stakes trader without an ISDA is like trying to win the Indy 500 riding a llama. So, you know, they pretty much get destroyed. And then they stumble across Jared Vanette's report about the housing bubble on a table. And now they break the fourth wall here and literally say, this didn't happen. We read about it in a newspaper. So, you know, these kind of moments that are added for plot convenience and stuff are deliberately called out by their writing, which I think is pretty awesome. And we see these guys are pretty good entrepreneurs. They made a lot of money. Uh, really fast by basically finding things that were really, really risky that people thought would never happen and betting for them so that when they failed, you know, they didn't lose enough. But when they were right, they were right big time. And they're also mentored by Brad Pitt's character, Ben Rickard, who, as I mentioned, is like this really 
uber-environmentalist, strange, almost Armageddon-fearing kind of guy, so that's a little interesting. We now see two people from Steve Carell's team basically go out in the field and see if some of these mortgages are as bad as they say, and sure enough, they are. This is a great scene in terms of atmosphere because it's like all these abandoned houses like on the beach, all these terrible mortgages that they're investigating, and you just get this kind of eerie feeling that like something could go horribly wrong here because we get there, we get to this one guy's house, uh, and he's asking for a landlord, and apparently the landlord registered these mortgages under his dog's name, so we're already getting this idea that these landlords, these bankers, most of the time are very corrupt, very shady in what they're doing, and this poor guy, you know, he's he's made his living, he's bought this house, and now he's like, is this all going to go away from me? I've been paying my rent, it's my landlord's fault. So, you know, Steve Carell's kind of employee is like, yeah, you should look into this, like, this is this is worse than we expected. They also go into one house where it's actually been completely evicted, but it's still a member of one of the mortgage-backed securities. There's even an alligator in the pool, and that's mem- oh, one of the mortgages in an MBS, and it's just like, this is what is making up these bonds that are supposed to be so solid? Like, this is crazy. Then we go back to Michael Burry's office. The main investor basically comes in to scream in his face and say, you are an idiot. We want our money back, and we don't really get a sense on how this scene ends. Christian Bell's just like, you gotta trust me on this. Like, this is going to come through. I might have been a little early on buying these, but I'm not wrong. We then see again some of Steve Carell's people. Uh, they're riding with a real estate agent, and she's saying like how this housing market at this beach is awesome. You know, it's selling like crazy. Steve Carell's there as well. And he's basically saying there was a little bit of a housing gully a while back, but now people are selling at high prices. They're moving in and out. They're motivated because of this gully. So, you know, it looks bad to see Carell. He's like, why are these people moving into these great houses and then moving out immediately for like, incredible prices all of this just seems unrealistic and she just says oh it's the gully people are just motivated but it's clear that something weird is going on here again i'm doing my best with all this financial stuff it's more of just this feeling you get with each scene building that like something's not right with all this uh and you know that's solidified in the next scene because we got these two mortgage guys who are just total idiots they're saying they don't even reject applications for mortgages half the time they're just adding them into mbs's like they don't care uh, and these guys have like no ed- education. Like this guy was a bartender, and now he's this you know high stakes trader or whatever. Uh, what's funny is in the background the song "Crazy" by CeeLo Green, or rather Narles Barkley is playing in the background, and you can barely pick up on it, but it's a nice little touch because you are getting this idea like these guys are truly insane. Like what is going on? And and they're obviously all idiots because at one point Steve Carell brings up Warren Buffett, and you hear in passing one of the guys they're talking to saying who's Warren Buffett, which is one of the best lines in this movie that's just kind of thrown in there at the last second, which I thought was pretty awesome. Uh, anyway, Steve Carell gets word that, like, you know, some of these mortgages are going from immigrants who are just happy to have a house. Uh, but he says, you know, the big sell is actually strippers because strippers make a ton of money and they use it all up and they get a ton of loans. And he's just saying, like, the strippers go crazy. So Steve Carell, in a, in a very interesting scene, sits in a strip club and he doesn't even want the stripper to dance. He's just trying to like sit down and talk to her. And it becomes apparent that these strippers have taken out tons of loans, like ridiculous amounts of loans. And Steve Carell's like, these could go up by 200% in about a year because these are adjustable rates and stuff like that. Like, you know, this is how economics work. And the strippers are like, uh, that's not good. I have like five loans. I have five houses and stuff like that. So it's becoming apparent that this whole system is built on very, very shaky foundations. And it's funny because then we immediately cut to Steve Carell calling Vinny and basically saying, hey, yeah, there's a bubble. <laughs> and it's a pretty, pretty nice little transition from those two scenes. I think it's, you know, this movie does a great job of contrasting how a character feels in one scene to how they snap into the other scene. Pretty awesome. Uh, and then Vinny then calls up Jared Vanette and says, yeah, we're going to take those deals and, 
And, you know, he's like, how are you screwing us over here? And Ryan Gosling's like, we aren't. Trust me. You get the Sunday, I just get the cherry on top. And he makes his whole pitch. And Vinny's like, fine, I'll take, you know, I, I forget, maybe $5 million or something like that. And Ryan Gosling's in the gym. He's freaking out, and he's high-fiving people. It's a pretty comical little scene. We, get, we then get the two young entrepreneurs. I think their names are Charlie and Jamie. I'm just going to, you know, say that for now, that it's Charlie and Jamie. And they call up Ben Rickert, who's very strict about thinking the government's looking into his stuff. He's just so, you know, skeptical and suspicious and paranoid of everything all the time. He's a pretty interesting character. He doesn't really do too much in this movie. At least I wasn't too invested in him. But he is pretty funny when you look at some of his, you know, personality traits and quirks, which I think this movie does a great job of. Every character has a very distinct personality. There's no static characters in this movie. They're all really fun to watch, I would say. And I think it's just pretty awesome what they did with some of the character development in this movie. But basically, the guys who are the young entrepreneurs had called Brad Pitt and said, hey, can you review these mortgage-backed security pitch that Jared Vanette had? Because if this is true, this could be huge. And Brad Pitt says, yeah, it's brilliant. This is exactly what is going on. There is a bubble, and you guys might want to you know, jump into this. Uh, and, and they're like, yeah, well, definitely, but uh, there's a minor problem. We need an ISDA. And you know, you've come to find out that Brad Pitt used to be on Wall Street. And they're like, Ben, we know we're, that you're super skeptical of the system and everything. We're not asking you to trade for us. We just want a seat at the table. So sure enough, mini montage, I guess you could say, Ben arrives, gets them an ISDA from a big bank, and you know they're pretty, pretty excited, pretty much celebrating that they have finally gotten a seat to now make these swaps and deals so that they can capitalize on what they know is coming. We then get a quote that says, truth is like poetry, and most people effing hate poetry. Pretty awesome quote there, and it said it was overheard at a Washington, D.C. bar. The way it's revealed is pretty funny, too. You get the first line and then a pause and then the second line. So it's basically saying, you know, like, this stuff is happening, this stuff is real, and none of the bankers really care about it, and they don't like it when they, you know, come to find out about it. But we get this idea that, you know, there's new mortgage delinquencies hitting a new high. We see kind of a newsreel in New York on the Fox News building. And Steve Carell is basically calling and talking to his staff and come to find out that subprime loans are recently going down. So they're thinking, oh yeah, here it comes. But that subprime bonds, which is basically all the loans make up the bonds, the bonds have actually gone up. So they're like, that does not make any sense. you know. And apparently Jerry Vanette's saying, yo, pay up your premiums because the bonds are going up, not down right now, even though the loans are going down, which is super shady because the loans are what are inside the bonds. That just doesn't make any sense. So Steve Carell's talking to his staff and they're like, this is insane. What is going on? And so then they go to one of the ratings agencies, uh, and the ratings person basically says, look, we have to play to the banks or else they'll go to our competition. So that means sometimes, you know, she's not disclosing any numbers, but it's pretty obvious that they're a bit corrupt. They're letting these kind of rates with, you know, the bonds go up all while the loans are going down, even though it all should be tanking already. So, you know, you get this idea that there's some serious corruption. You know, before you were just figuring out that people were just making stupid errors in in banking, but now you get an idea that this stupidity is generating some serious corruption, some serious fraud, and that's exactly what Ryan Gosling lays out in the next scene. Although we have a quick intermission where we see that the value of Michael Burry's business, he writes on a whiteboard, has severely gone down. It's dropped 11%, and he starts freaking out and screaming and stuff like that. He's pretty funny in some of those scenes. And the young entrepreneurs also suggest that hey, I think these bankers are hiding the values of these bonds. Like, think about it, because there's no way that this should be happening. He's saying there is some serious fraud going on. This is exactly what, you know, Ryan Gosling suggests in the next scene. Because if these loans are going down, then the bonds should be going down even more, because the loans are what are inside the bonds. So it doesn't make any sense. So that's what I like, is you kind of flip between a couple of these characters, and you see them all guiding down the same path, which is pretty funny, and then it 
quite literally they go down the same path in just a moment as Ryan Gosling says, look, it is coming. You have to trust me. You guys have way too much trust in the system. Like, they think, you know, this is just weird. Somehow Ryan Gosling's scamming them. And Ryan Gosling's like, think with your head because these bankers are so stupid that they they have engaged in so much fraud. You know, they just, you know, Steve Crow and all them are just thinking something's wrong with this pitch. They've been scammed. And Ryan Gosling's just saying, no, you would be amazed how much of this is generated by sheer stupidity and how there's all this corruption generated by sheer stupidity. So he's saying, trust me. And you know, if you want evidence, let's go to the American securitization, 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 I can't say it, the American Securitization Forum, which is basically a convention for bonds, which is kind of a, you know, that's kind of a stupid thing, but they go to it. It's in Vegas. So we also see that, uh, you know, the two young entrepreneurs, Charlie and Jamie, along with Brad Pitt have also gone there. And then Mark Baum interrupts, uh, you know, a speaker at this forum, which is a pretty funny thing, in which he says, hey, what are the chances that when these, you know, what are the chances that these ratings, like these failures stop at 8%? I'm not exactly sure what the percent was, you know, uh, referring to, but just put it, just put it this way. At 8% was supposed to be like the max, like, you know, the bonds would not decrease more than 8%. And so he says, what is the chance of that happening? And the guy on stage is like, uh, there's a zero, or He's saying there's a strong probability that the bonds will stop by eight. And Steve Carell goes, no, zero. There's a 0% chance they will stop at eight. This thing is a bubble. It's going down. And he basically has interrupted the whole session. And Ryan Gosling says, yeah, Mark Baum actually did that in real life. So that's a pretty funny touch. I love all these Ryan Gosling narrations. One of my favorite aspects of the movie is whenever he breaks the fourth wall or directly commentates on what's going on. We see the young entrepreneurs continue to realize how stupid and corrupt many of these bankers are, you know, they go out shooting with some other bankers, find out that guy's stupid. Uh, Jamie meets with this girl, and she's pretty corrupt, too. Like It's just kind of a string of scenes where you're figuring out that this banking world is literally the worst. But as I see Michael Burry sleeping in his office, he's really suffering now. He's taking some hits. Business is down by 19%. And one of his employees is like, what is the chance that you're wrong? And, you know, like, are the investors trying to pull out? And you want to see a sign of weakness in Michael Burry. He's realizing that there is a chance. He's so positive but there's a chance. It's a nice little like glimmer from him of, you know, there's some skepticism, even though we know what's going to happen. And then we get the two young entrepreneurs and they have a revelation that none of the other characters in this movie do. He says, if these, you know, B's and triple B's are, you know, really terrible when people are buying them and, you know, thinking they're good, he says that he bets that some of the A's are made of this exact same, you know, terrible quality mortgages. So, you know, Brad Pitt says, yeah, that makes sense. They look into it. I mean, this is so shady that it's likely that, you know, some of these A's are just as bad as the B's in terms of their rating. So, you know, they go on to have a montage where they're buying A's, you know, betting against A's, I should say. They're betting against triple A's, betting against double A's, betting against single A's. I don't think they bet against any triple A's, definitely double A's. Uh, But they're betting against them and all the bankers are like, yeah, you can bet against as many as you want, man. That's pretty awesome for me. So they pretty much get laughed at again, another great montage. And then we get the first kind of true revelation of what's going on in this movie because the the entrepreneurs, they're celebrating, right? They're like, this could not be any better. Like, we're going to cash in on this. And Brad Pitt just suddenly wheels around and he says, no, if you guys are right, the world economy basically fails. People lose jobs, people lose homes. And he's basically dropping these stats on them where you realize as an audience member that, yeah, this has some serious repercussions. You know it does in real life, but... You're suddenly real. You're suddenly viewing this issue not through the eyes of the characters in the story, and you're realizing, yeah, this could be really bad. Even though these guys are going to cash in on it, and nobody seems to really grasp that. Anyway, we go back to Ryan Gosling, and he's like, 
listen, Mark Baum, do you still not believe that these people are really freaking stupid? Well, let's have dinner with one. So they all kind of watch as Steve Carell has dinner with this guy, this trader, who basically is talking about how there's CDOs, uh, and then there's also synthetic CDOs, and there's all this other made-up stuff and terrible ratings and stuff, and he's just cashing in on it, and he's not even representing a bank, he's representing investors, and this guy is just super ridiculously corrupt. Like, I can't even list all the reasons, really. This guy's just a total idiot. What's really funny is there's a laugh track playing in the background for some of this part, because you are literally watching and realizing how funny this is, that this guy is so stupid. And Steve Carell is kind of coming to these realizations as well, which is pretty awesome. So the laugh track, for once, used well in not only a TV show, but a movie. Probably my favorite use of a laugh track ever. And progressively, Steve Carell becomes a little bit more distressed throughout this meeting. His hair is getting a little messed up. And he's saying, you are literally an idiot. Like, you are an idiot. And then we get Selena Gomez and Richard Thaler, the dubbed father of behavioral economics, and they explain synthetic CDOs, which are basically a side bet saying, like, I bet you that the housing market will go up and stuff like that. And how that just continues to build. So if this collapses, all those synthetic CDOs will collapse if the housing market collapse. All of this financial stuff. This is the one spot in the movie where I fully was like, I have no idea what they're talking about in terms of finance. Uh, you know, I sort of grasped the other stuff. This part got a little confusing, even with Selena Gomez explaining it straight to me. But Steve Carell gets up after basically containing his rage against this guy and walks over to his table and says, yeah, short everything that guy owns. This is absolutely insane. And he says he's going to go off to find some moral redemption, which is a pretty great one-liner in this movie. And then we see this guy, you know, the guy who's the total idiot, get into a limo while all the rest of them get into cabs and stuff like that, which is a pretty funny contrast, especially because you know how it's going to go. We also see Steve Carell with one of his emotional scenes in which he meets with his wife, and she's kind of consoling him. She's like, listen, you can't please everybody, and they start remembering the brother's suicide and stuff, and he's really breaking down, she's breaking down. It's fantastic acting in this scene, but the scene really doesn't have much relevance to the story. Again, that was kind of the one plot aspect I didn't really enjoy was this kind of suicide plot line that is barely in the movie and doesn't really impact the story at all and definitely doesn't really push it forward in any way. It's kind of an attempt to give Steve Carell's character a little bit more depth, but I think the sheer fact that he's always trying to please everyone is already a quality that kind of works in this movie in interesting ways, scene by scene. We then get the scene you probably saw in all the trailers and promotional stuff, Christian Bale slamming on the drums and basically raging. Pretty awesome little scene as he just beats the drums and has a good time. We then see him go into his office and he makes a bold move. He basically tells all his investors... I know everything looks bad right now, but you can't pull out your money. He, in fact, freezes all the funds and says, investors, you're in it with me. So if we tank, we all tank together, which all the investors are freaking out. He's getting, he gets 50 emails in like the course of 30 seconds, all saying, I'm suing, you're an idiot, what are you doing? But then the first bomb drops. One big bank mortgage lender collapses and all the entrepreneurs are like, what? They like get up from their couch. They're like, what just happened? And it's pretty awesome because this kind of comes out of nowhere. It's not as big and impactful as some of the ones to come, but it's just suddenly a, a little bit of a minor twist. This pretty much denotes to me the start of the third act where there's kind of a change in tone from all this upbeat kind of hustling and smart dialogue and everything that's pretty awesome to now this kind of sense of dread hanging over the rest of the movie. And we see more hedge funds are, you know, liquidating. They're getting destroyed. Michael Burry is reassuring his people, but he's also calling saying, listen, why is this sort of collapsing, but we're not getting any payout? He's talking about how there's like still this corruption where the, the banks are collapsing internally, but they're keeping everything rated very high. So right now, all the people who have you know relied on this big short are getting nothing out of it. This was also a little confusing, but essentially uh, you get you know you get a sense with it when the entrepreneurs go in and talk with this journalist and say this is 
a level of criminality that is unprecedented even for Wall Street. They're basically fake valuing their bonds that should be tanking right now so that they don't lose much money and just can sell them at the last second when they're starting to realize that the inevitable is going to happen. So you sort of see that this collapse is impending and that the bankers are kind of hiding from it in a way. And and Steve Carell especially starts freaking out because, you know, he is more directly tied to some of these banks than anyone else. And he calls Ryan Gosling, who's just kind of reassuring them. Ryan Gosling's in the bathroom demanding complete privacy from all the people that are trying to use the bathroom, which is a pretty funny little aspect that adds to this scene. But again, this is a pretty complicated part in terms of finance. Just get it in your head that this was the one time where the banks have gone way too far in being super criminal. And now all these people that are relying on the big short are freaking out because they should be cashing in right now and they're in fact losing more money. But then, you know, the banks continue to go. They really are starting to collapse. And you get this idea that, yeah, these main characters, it's working out for them. Michael Burry gets a call and he's saying, yeah, I know I know, I bought 100 million swaps from you or whatever, but uh, that was the deal we agreed on. So you get this idea that these banks are scrambling to take back what they said originally and stuff like that, which is pretty funny. Uh, Steve Carell walks into uh, his own bank, Morgan Stanley, the one he works under the umbrella on. And come to find out that they are basically tanking as well from a woman that has been in a couple scenes throughout the movie. And again, this all, all this third act finance stuff was probably the most complicated to me. I was following it up until then. But it doesn't really take away from the story at all because you can tell by the emotions of the characters who's winning, who's losing, and who's criminal, and who's honest, and who's doing their best, all that kind of stuff. So it's pretty accurately portrayed. Anyway, Steve Carell basically finds out that since they're under the umbrella of Morgan Stanley who is now tanking in ways they had not imagined. All this time, he's basically been betting against himself. And, you know, they're realizing that if they sell their swaps, they're probably no better than some of these other criminal guys because they're just kind of scooting out the last thing. And it's kind of complicated, but just know that now you really get this sense that Steve Crow has this moral dilemma where, you know, it's been established that he's trying to help everyone, he's trying to be moral. And now, you know, he's faced with, does he save himself or let these banks fall or what does he do? So that's a pretty awesome aspect as we get him really losing his cool at this dinner scene where, you know, his partners are imploring him. He has to sell. This isn't just him. This is, you know, millions of clients and stuff like that across the world that could be suffering. They need to just get out of this right now. But Steve Carell's like, no, I say when we sell. I know this is complicated, so just bear with me. I think for the rest of the time, honestly, this spoiler section, because I was trying to go fast and make a streamline, I've done a pretty poor job of expounding upon anything that wasn't the plot line itself. Uh, you know, I just want to encompass that really quickly. The writing in this movie is phenomenal. The writing in this movie is absolutely incredible. One of the best written movies I've ever seen, bar none, because it's so incredibly gripping and interesting scene by scene, whether it's in comedy or drama, like this third act, it's incredible what the writers were able to do here, aided a lot by the kind of flashy directing of Adam McKay. Uh, and that all just creates this really like polished product at the end that's Really awesome. That's nice contrast between every single scene and especially every act. So great job on this whole final product. I can't say enough about how these scenes are written where you're getting all these ideas bounced around, but all this skepticism that leads to a lot of, you know, really funny remarks. It's, it's just great all around. But back to the plot. Basically, the two entrepreneurs figure out that they've bought this stuff, but now that all the tank, all the banks are tanking, they actually don't know how to sell it. So we get this kind of last minute scrambling. This is the rest of their scenes for the movie, so I'll just encompass it into one bubble here. Uh, they basically get Brad Pitt to guide them and sell them for him, and you know they're very thankful for that, and it all works out well for them. Uh, we go back to Michael Burry, who's again, you know, he's he's pretty, he's pretty. You can't tell by the way he's acting, which is pretty funny. He gives a nice air and you know professionalism to his character, 
But you know that this guy is just laughing in the faces of the banks who laughed at him at the beginning. It's a really awesome kind of full circle where you just hear him on the phone saying, yeah, I know I bought those swaps, but we had an agreement and stuff like that. So it's pretty awesome. And we also see him sending out insane checks to people like Ryan Gosling, uh, such as $489 million and stuff like that, to a bunch of people. And they're basically all cashing in on the fact that you know they bet against the housing market. They did it. And Ryan Gosling says, I was never the hero of this story. I didn't say I was. Uh, I got a fat check, and you might not be happy with that, but hey, you know, we looked, we did our job, and we weren't corrupt like those guys, really, although Steve Crow is still faced with that dilemma. We see him do a debate with a guy who's still confident in the stock market and stuff like that. Again, it's all getting a little muddled, muddled for me by now with all the stocks and stuff. If you're really curious in some of these financial things, you can read up a ton about it or just watch the movie again. Many of you listening to this probably have, so I'm not going to talk about that too much. But a great scene here where in the audience, one of the members is basically following along and realizing that the stocks for one of these banks is falling by like a couple points in a matter of seconds. And in the time that Mark Baum is debating this guy or something like this on stage, the bank is plummeting. And so the entire audience starts leaving and this guy who was so confident a moment before who was debating Steve Carell is uh, suddenly, you know, losing a bit of his confidence, which is a pretty awesome thing. You kind of see him get what he deserves uh, as one of as one of these bankers, almost representative of the bankers as a whole. As the housing markets and banks continued to hemorrhage, only one of the big shorts refused to sell, Mark Baum. So it was beyond perfect when he was asked to speak at a conference opposite Bruce Miller, a famous bullish investor. This was the Ali versus Foreman of the financial world, the realists versus the fools. And if it seems almost too perfect, trust me, this happened. Well, I take it you have no plans to sell your 200 million in bear stock? No, as a matter of fact, when we're done here, I'll probably go out and buy some more. For the opposing view, Mr. Baum. Okay, hi. My firm's thesis is pretty simple. Wall Street took a good idea, Louis Ranieri's mortgage bond, and turned it into an atomic bomb of fraud and stupidity that's on its way to decimating the world economy. How do you really feel? <laughs> I'm glad you still have a sense of humor. I wouldn't if I were you. We live in an era of fraud in America. What bothers me isn't that fraud is not nice or that fraud is mean. It's that for 15,000 years, fraud and short-sighted thinking have never ever worked. I thought we were better than this. I really did. And the fact that we're not doesn't make me feel all right and superior. It makes me feel sad. Every time I fresh, it's dropping, man. It Every always time. goes. Down. And as fun as it is to watch pompous, dumb Wall Streeters be wildly wrong, and you are wrong, sir, I just know that at the end of the day, average people are going to be the ones that are going to have to pay for all of this. Only that in the entire history of Wall Street, no investment bank has ever failed unless caught in criminal activities. So, yes, I stand by my Bear Stearns optimism. Uh, Mr. Miller, I'm sorry, quick question. From the time you guys started talking, Bear Stearns stock has fallen more than 38%. Would you still buy more? Yeah, sure. Uh, of course I'd buy more. Why not? Boom. We see some more news scrolls of how these banks are collapsing. We also see those young entrepreneurs walk into a Wall Street building and they're like, I thought it'd be different because they're in there and the only, they're the only ones in there. 
I almost see this as a cool symbolism at the end because everybody's lost their job is out of the bank and the two entrepreneurs are the only ones standing in it, except maybe a janitor. I can't remember that right. But it's pretty awesome because it shows you like they were, they were the only honest ones. They were the only ones to actually take a look at this stuff, to actually pay attention, you know, also with Michael Burry and all them. But it was pretty awesome what they were doing with some of that stuff. So, you know, that was a cool little symbol of how they're the only ones that really survived this kind of purge of Wall Street. And then we get a fantastic ending scene where this moral dilemma for Steve Carell's character, Mark Baum, kind of comes to a close in which he's basically sitting on a rooftop talking to Vinny, who's saying, look, it's now or never. It's time to sell. We need to, you know, get our hands off of this before we take a hit. Like, it's now or never. It's a bloodbath at the banks and stuff like that. Again, it's a little complicated with the plot. Can't say that enough. Uh, but, but, but before that scene closes out, we have Christian Bale give a really awesome monologue. All, the, all this stuff. I can't really recall the perfect monologue, but just know that this was a really awesome scene in the movie. I'm a little bit upset with myself for not remembering the total monologue. But the end part of it is that he makes a determination to close down the thing. So we see that even the weight of some of these things are even bearing down on the people who succeeded from it. And, you know, case in point, Michael Burry, who's now closing Sion Capital, walks out of his office one more time and turns to the whiteboard, which was down, you know, 20%. And now it goes up 489%. So pretty awesome. You don't even see him, you know, enjoying all this wealth. You just see him write it on a whiteboard and walk out. It's like one of the coolest finishing move kind of things for this character that you could possibly imagine really for any character like he just coolly writes the you know his profit on the whiteboard and just strolls out of there like a you know successful man back to steve crow he's really starting to freak out and he's saying you know like these bankers are terrible we're going to be just like the rest of them and what's crazy is he then finds out that the government is bailing out these banks you know the true story and he says yep they're going to just blame it on everybody all the poor people, all the stuff like this that were in these bonds, all these people that were in these mortgages and not the bankers at the top who are, you know, basically screwing with the whole system and getting too cocky. And he's saying the bankers knew, the bankers knew that the American taxpayer would would bail them out and they just didn't care. So that was a pretty cool little message at the end, you know, for you. Always kind of doubt the system. I guess that's really the moral of this story is don't put too much faith into authority. Don't put too much faith into the system that's at play. I think, if I remember correctly, that is mainly the moral of Christian Bale's monologue that just happened. But again, pretty awesome. Uh, and Ryan Gosling says, "But Mark Baum was wrong. You know, all these all these bankers went to jail, and people cashed in, and the government helped everyone, and many people were locked up, and Congress put on new regulations and broke up the banks." And then he says, "Just kidding. It was blamed on immigrants and poor people, and the banks all got away with it and were bailed out, and only one poor guy went to jail." who had a crime that wasn't even really directly related to any of this stuff. So that was pretty interesting to see. Uh, And, you know, you really get this sense like that you feel like Steve Carell in this situation because he knows what just happened is wrong, but you still want to see him succeed. He wants to see himself succeed. And it's a really awesome closing as he sits there in silence as Vinny continues to talk over the phone. You know, it's now or never. It's now or never, Mark. And the camera hits one more wide shot as we see Steve Carell sitting there, and he says, okay, sell it all. It's now and never, Mark. We gotta sell. Mark. Mark, can you hear me? Mark, you there? Mark. Halston and Bernanke just left the White House. There's going to be a bailout. Well, they had to. Right. 
the market would have they collapsed. They knew. Cash would have stopped coming out of ATMs. They had to backstop this. They knew the taxpayers would bail them out. They weren't being stupid. They just didn't care. I don't know. I don't know. You know, once we sell, we'll be just like the rest of them. That's right. But we got to close out our position, or it could be zero. I mean, it, it, it's now or never, Mark. Okay. Sell it all. And it's a really awesome, powerful moment at the end. It's powerful because it just gives you this sense of dread. Again, it's not flashy. You're not seeing these guys succeed. You really don't see anybody who was, you know, one of the short members succeed directly. You just kind of know that they won and all of their victories are pretty non-existent. You know, Christian Bale just writes his profit on a whiteboard and walks out because he knows the weight of what's happened. The entrepreneurs walk into Wall Street and seeing it all abandoned, they know they succeeded, but see the weight of everything that happened. And Steve Carell, obviously the epitome of this. Brad Pitt's kind of been like that the whole movie. But Steve Carell, again, the epitome, as he says, sell it all. Really strong ending to this movie, as you see. Just like this weight with this silence, like crushing down on you of like, this is a low point. You know, these guys are succeeding, but even they feel the brunt of things. It was a lose-lose situation for all. And Steve Carell now realizes, yeah, Ryan Gosling was right. Everybody was right. You can't trust the system. Then we get a couple more recap things, as you usually see in true stories. None of them are exceptionally interesting. Basically, he's talking about how banks collapsed, lots of bonds had disappeared, basically in $5 trillion. Uh, and 8 million people lost their jobs, 6 million lost their homes, and that was just the USA impacted the entire world. Mark Baum actually became really gracious after the collapse, which is pretty evident from his last scene where he has this regret and stuff like that. His team still runs a fund in New York. Uh, and the two young entrepreneurs tried to sue the ratings agencies and were basically laughed out of the offices. So again, you see that this corruption is kind of continuing off screen. Ben Rickert uh, actually lives with his wife where they have a large orchard with plenty of seeds, a nod to his environmentalist lines from earlier in the film which are pretty funny michael burry contacted the government and probably the press and stuff like that to see if anyone wanted to interview him to see how he knew that this was going to happen and no one returned his calls in fact he got destroyed basically he got audited four times and questioned by the fbi he basically got pretty heavily hit by all this even though he was right he knew what he was doing and he did nothing wrong as opposed to everybody else in this situation uh he now invests in water apparently and the best closing slide I've ever seen for a true story. It says, in 2015, several large banks began selling billions in something called a bespoke tranche opportunity. Pause, fade in, which according to Bloomberg News is just another name for a CDO. And that leaves you with this fantastic message of like, this stuff is still happening. It's a scary thought, really. Like, it's just, you you can't trust the system is the idea here, at least the system of banking uh, until you have experienced it firsthand, which you kind of do through the lens of this movie, which is a really awesome moral, kind of the first moral, probably first official theme slash moral we can pull out of a movie for Cine Study. Woohoo! So yeah, don't trust the system. That's today's moral from The Big Short. And I think that's a pretty interesting one to do. Obviously, there are exceptions to that, but I think it's a pretty clear-cut example here. And that's about it for the spoiler section of The Big Short. Uh, it's been a pretty awesome ride here uh, on The Big Short episode. Went through the spoiler section, which, again, there isn't many spores. It's really just me trying to decipher financial language and talking about how much I like the writing. And I didn't make, make this very short, even though I said I would. So, you know, that kind of sucks. But, oh well. 
I think that's about it. So again, you know, I already did the why you should watch it. I'm not even going to bother restating myself. I need to just think of a more clear-cut, definite end to this podcast because I'm already rambling again when this should already be over. So thank you for listening to Sin and Study. Be sure to subscribe on whatever podcast platform you're listening to. We're going to have more platforms and social media rolling out in the future. Leave a review. Tell your friends all the usual. Look out for our next episode coming soon. And that's about it from me, host Dylan. So thank you for listening to The Big Short, Episode 6 of Cinestudy, and we'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening to Cinestudy. Thank you.